Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. U.S. leaders voicing support for protesters in China, while Britain's prime minister says the U.K.'s golden era with China is over and they need a new approach. Dueling legal teams in Arizona. Carrie Lake vows to carry on the fight, while Katie Hobbs sues a county that refused to certify election results. We have the details. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy might not have the votes to be elected Speaker of the House when Republicans take over. That's due to election results, but also because of internal opposition. House Democrats preparing to elect their new leader tomorrow. It will signal a generational shift after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi leaves her role. Chinese police have strengthened their presence in Beijing in response to the mass protests against the regime's zero-COVID policies. In some regions, police cars lined the streets, many parked with their lights flashing. They also formed roadblocks on some routes. Protesters over the weekend said police called them to check on their whereabouts. It's unclear how the police identified them. And on Monday, Beijing protests were canceled when officers circled the meeting area. But elsewhere, the Chinese continued protesting. In the southern port city, Guangzhou, residents gathered around barricades to protest the weeks-long lockdown. The footage appears to be from today, but the data is unverified. Earlier today, local officials said they would further tighten COVID-19 measures in the area. Residents were even bolder in Jinan, the capital of eastern China's Shandong province. Video shows people trying to break out of a barricade and confronting officers in white hazmat suits. The protests began over the weekend after a deadly fire in Xinjiang sparked anger over COVID lockdowns. It's an unprecedented wave of civil disobedience since Xi Jinping took power. The U.S. Embassy in China is asking U.S. citizens living there to stock up on supplies. It issued the statement yesterday. It could signal that Chinese lockdowns are about to intensify amid recent protests. Now Western leaders are voicing their support for the Chinese people. Entity's Jessica Beatty has more. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken voiced support Tuesday for peaceful Chinese protesters. Blinken said, we support the right of people everywhere to peacefully protest to make known their views, their concerns, and their frustrations. Blinken's comments come after discontent with the Chinese regime's strict lockdowns ignited anti-government protests across China over the weekend. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is also voicing support. He sent a message to the Chinese people Monday. In it, he recalled meeting with Chinese dissidents during his time as Secretary of State. For me, those conversations were reminders. Reminders that Americans must always stand with freedom-loving people everywhere around the world. They need us. Pompeo told Fox the Chinese Communist Party does not represent the Chinese people who just want a little more freedom. He said he's worried CCP leader Xi Jinping will use force and brutality to quell the uprisings. Meanwhile, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak Monday said Britain's approach to China needs to evolve. Now let's be clear, the so-called golden era is over, along with the naive idea that trade would automatically lead to social and political reform. Sunak said Beijing is consciously competing for global influence using all the levers of state power. We recognise China poses a systemic challenge to our values and interests a challenge that grows more acute as it moves towards even greater authoritarianism. Sunak's referring to Beijing's suppression of Chinese protests and the arrest and beating of a BBC journalist. The European Broadcasting Union Monday said it strongly condemns aggression towards its member journalists in China. The statement comes after a China correspondent for Swiss broadcaster RTS was briefly detained while reporting live from a protest in Shanghai. BBC journalist Edward Lawrence was also arrested by police in Shanghai Sunday night. The EBU said other journalists were threatened and some were prevented from going on air or filming. It said that's unacceptable and marks a new low. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. U.S. stocks ended sharply lower on Monday. That's after the protests in major Chinese cities sparked concerns about economic growth and Apple slid on worries about a hit to iPhone production. Here are the details. 
Wall Street tumbled on Monday as protests in major Chinese cities against strict COVID-19 policies sparked concerns about the global economy. Rare protests in major Chinese cities over the weekend against the country's strict zero-COVID curbs are exacerbating worries about growth in the world's second-largest economy. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell almost 500 points, dropping nearly 1.5%. The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq both dropped more than 1.5%. Apple shares fell $3.89, down more than 2.6%, dragging down the benchmark S&P 500 index as worker unrest in the world's biggest iPhone factory in China fanned fears of a deeper hit to the already constrained production of higher-end phones. But I think you're going to see some real supply chain issues. Greg Swenson is a founding partner at Brig McAdam. You know, the, the unrest is actually happening in you know, in the factory that's, that's you know, that, that makes these iPhones. Mitigating those losses, shares of e-commerce behemoth Amazon.com rose nearly six-tenths of a percent after an industry report estimated spending on Cyber Monday, the biggest U.S. online shopping day, would climb as much as $11.6 billion. This week, investors will keep a close watch on November consumer confidence data due on Tuesday, the government's second estimate for third-quarter gross domestic product due on Wednesday, and November's jobs report due on Friday. Consumer confidence in the nation's economy has dipped this month. The conference board's Consumer Confidence Index dropped two points in November when compared to the month before it. Economists were already expecting it to measure low at around 100. It's now at 100.2. The index is at its lowest level since July when gas prices spiked and inflation worsened. And more on the protests in China. We get some analysis on how the U.S. trade relationship with Beijing is shaping the response, as well as how the protests affect the CCP's image among the Chinese people. Please welcome Anders Kaur, the publisher of the Journal of Political Risk. Great to have you on for some analysis on this very important topic, Anders. Thank you. We have seen a cautious response from the Biden administration to the protests in China. Is this a political tactic to keep relations somewhat intact with Beijing or a sign of weakness to call this out, given that the Chinese people's freedoms are being further eroded by the CCP, not to mention the zero COVID has claimed the lives of several people in a fire in Xinjiang already? I think it's probably a little of both. The Biden administration uh, does want to support, of course, democracy and freedom in China. Everyone does. Um, but uh, at the same time, they don't want relations to deteriorate too much. Um, they've been, in general, weak on China. Um, they're not tough enough because they want to get uh, the trade, $650 billion, $610 billion a year, going again. Um, $2.3 trillion of U.S. institutional investment, by last count, in China. All of that needs to be protected uh, from their perspective. In, you know, and they do that by basically being soft on China wherever necessary. I see how you're mentioning that trade interests are playing a role in their response. Now, we have seen solidarity from peoples around the world for those people in China who are protesting. Solidarity is good. What can we expect to come of it? More international political pressure on the CCP? I hope so. I think that there will be uh, increasing pressure on the CCP uh, to democratize their processes. Uh, to give people a bigger voice. I think this co these COVID protests are very clearly uh, one of those cases where they just can't hold the people back. And uh, that's the great thing about democracy is that it institutionalizes the input of the, the people uh, into political decision-making. They don't have that in China. And the result is bad policy. Um, and they only find out sometimes about how bad their policies are when people get out in the streets. What do these protests mean for the communist regime's image within China's borders? I think that it makes China look, uh, and specifically the Chinese Communist Party, I think it makes them look weaker um, than, it, than they did in the past. It, it, there hasn't been protests like this, um, anywhere close to this, since uh, Tiananmen square in 1989. Um, of course, those were much bigger and centralized in Beijing. But, um, you know, these things, uh, people have gotten used to very little dissent in China, very few protests of uh, the regime in Beijing. There have there are frequently scattered protests in China on more local issues like land issues or uh, banks that don't pay uh, their depositors. 
Um, but these kind of bigger, broader, more decentralized protests um, that are focused on a national level policy um, are really new. And the response of the Chinese Communist Party, of course, is to try to localize blame for that for uh, these things down to the local level. They're claiming that the protests are a result of individual level, you know, local level party members who've made mistakes, uh, for example, um, in Xinjiang uh, with the burning of the 10 of the 10 people, um, you know, due to probably due to in part to COVID policies. Um, so they're trying to localize the blame and that way remove blame from the national level um, so that the focus doesn't go against the CCP and Xi Jinping. However, there have been chants at some of these protests, not just against the COVID policies, which I think is the primary primary uh, vector of, of dissent in China, um, but there are also some uh, chants against Xi Jinping himself uh, and, the, and the Communist Party. I see here you're drawing parallels here to the Tiananmen Square massacre. Always good to have your analysis. Anders Kaur, the publisher of Journal of Political Risk, great to have you on today. Thank you. Carrie Lake says she won't back down from her election battle. Meanwhile, Arizona Secretary of State Katie Hobbs sued a Republican-controlled county Monday for refusing to certify its election results by the state's statutory deadline. Entity's Daniel Monahan has the story. And you'll want to stay tuned for this one, trust me. In a five-minute video posted on Twitter, Lake repeatedly called the election botched. She says she's working with a team of lawyers on a legal case to challenge the results. I will lead us in the Pledge of Allegiance. She lashed out at Supervisor Bill Gates and County Recorder Stephen Richer for starting what she called a dark money political action committee. She says its sole purpose was going after her and her campaign and what she called their movement while they supervised the election. They ran an election with my name on the ballot and their number one political goal was to see to it that I was not elected. She accused the two of having a conflict of interest. She says another member of the Board of Supervisors charged with certifying the election was chosen to be on Katie Hobbs's transition team and spoke about the dual role of Katie Hobbs as her opponent and also as the chief election officer in the state. As Arizona Secretary of State, Hobbs' office is responsible for certifying voting devices, election results, candidates, and ballot measures. The video came in the wake of Maricopa County certifying the election results. Maricopa County Supervisor Bill Gates. It is our statutory duty to complete this part of the election process. Gates said by law, residents can't challenge results until after the county and the state certify them. Challengers then have five days to complain. More than 1.5 million county voters cast ballots, 290,000 on Election Day alone, a large percentage of them Republican. However, an estimated 70 of the 223 county voting centers on Election Day reported printer malfunction. The situation resulted in long lines of frustrated voters. The Election Integrity Unit of the Attorney General's Office compiled a report on the issues and demanded answers. Maricopa County has acknowledged there were printer problems, but said that laws do not require every printer and tabulator to work perfectly. It also challenged the claims of excessive wait time, saying a majority of vote centers had a peak wait time of 15 minutes or less. Meanwhile, Arizona Secretary of State Katie Hobbs sued a Republican-controlled county Monday, this after it refused to certify its election results by the state's statutory deadline. The lawsuit aims to compel the Cochise County Board of Supervisors to certify the county's results from the November 8th election. Officials in Cochise voted earlier in the day against certifying its election results. Under state law, Arizona is supposed to certify its results by December 8th with or without certification from all the counties. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. In Georgia, the showdown between Senator Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker has captured voters' attention. The state's single-day early voting record has been broken. The chief operating officer for Georgia's Secretary of State says more than 300,000 people early voted Monday for the December 6th runoff. The old record was 233,000 votes in a single day. Early voting in some counties began over the weekend. We have never seen a Sunday that big. The previous record Sunday was October 25th of 2020, kind of a big election year. It was 37,000 voters. It shows excitement about the race. It's a Senate race, and we anticipate that. And then the lines today and the turnout today has been tremendous. 
Monday was the first day early voting was required in every county. Over the weekend, more than 157,000 people voted. A Pennsylvania county failed to certify midterm election results yesterday. Paper shortages caused Election Day ballot problems at the location. Two Democratic members of the Luzerne County Board of Elections voted to certify the results. Both Republicans voted no, and the fifth member, Democrat Daniel Schramm, abstained. Schramm has since said he plans to vote in favor of certifying the results at a board meeting set for tomorrow. He says assurances that few, if any, voters were unable to cast ballots caused his change of heart. And Congressman Don McEachin died yesterday after a battle with colorectal cancer. He was 61. McEachin represented Virginia's 4th Congressional District, which includes part of Richmond and extends south to the North Carolina border. He was re-elected to a fourth term earlier this month. He was born in Nuremberg, Germany to an army veteran and a school teacher. He first became a lawyer in private practice and then served in the House of Delegates and State Senate in Virginia as a Democrat. He was elected to his first term in the U.S. House in 2016. McEachin is survived by his wife and three children. And still to come, Elon Musk says he is going to war with Apple. The Twitter CEO is accusing the tech giant of censorship and monopolistic behavior. Find out why just after this break. Will Kevin McCarthy be the next Speaker of the House? He did win the speakership nomination. However, there's still a chance the representative from California won't take over the role due to the Republicans' slim majority in the House. At least five House Republicans have publicly opposed Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy's bid to become Speaker of the House. McCarthy can't lose more than four votes in order to take over the role as Speaker because the GOP is expected to have 222 seats in the House and 218 votes are needed to be elected Speaker. In the worst case for Republicans, Democrats could end up garnering more votes for a single Speaker candidate than Republicans, even though Republicans have the majority, as McCarthy explained on Newsmax on Monday. And if we don't do this right, the Democrats can take the majority. If we play games on the floor, the Democrats can end up picking who the Speaker is. Representative Matt Gates of Florida is among those who publicly opposed McCarthy as the next Speaker. Gates instead recommended other people. In an interview with Fox News at CPAC in August, Gates explained his stance. Can we trust Kevin McCarthy to be in the battle with us and not be a valet for the lobbyists and special interests on K Street? I still think that's an open question. For my money, the best person to be Speaker of the House would be Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio. Our base trusts him. He's the hardest working, most talented member. In the same interview, Gates said he asked former President Trump to become Speaker, but Trump allegedly declined. Besides Gates, Representative Ralph Norman of South Carolina and Representative Andy Biggs of Arizona reportedly also said they wouldn't vote for McCarthy, not even in exchange for concessions on House rules. Reports say Bob Good of Virginia and Matt Rosendale of Montana are the other two Republicans openly opposing McCarthy. However, there seems to be a chance they'd vote for him if concessions were being offered. After McCarthy won the nomination for Speaker, some Republicans started trying to impose new rules that would take away power from the Speaker. Rosendale said each member of Congress has earned and deserves equal participation in the legislative process. That will only happen if the House returns to the rules that govern this legislative body before Nancy Pelosi took control. Kevin McCarthy isn't willing to make those changes. We reached out to Kevin McCarthy's office for comment, but didn't hear back before broadcast. Going into the new Congress next year, the Democratic House leadership will have new faces and likely a generational shift. Thank you, Austin. With House Speaker Nancy Pelosi leaving the Democratic House leadership, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries is favored to be the next minority leader. The New York Democrat said on November 18th he will run for House Democratic leader. He said in a statement, quote, Our top non-governmental priority for the sake of the American people must be retaking the majority in November 2024. Jeffries has been representing Brooklyn, New York in Congress since 2013. He has been the chair of the House Democratic Caucus since 2019, making him the fifth highest-ranked Democrat currently in the House. Jeffries is also a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, the House Judiciary Committee, and the House Budget Committee. The congressman is known for his opposition to former President Trump. He was one of seven House managers during Trump's first impeachment.
If 52-year-old Jeffries were to succeed 82-year-old Pelosi, it would signal a generational shift within the Democratic Party, and it's a change happening to other leadership positions as well. House Current House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer and Majority Whip Jim Clyburn, both over 80 years old, are retiring from their leadership roles. 59-year-old Massachusetts Congresswoman Catherine Clark is expected to become the next minority whip. And 43-year-old California Congressman Pete Aguilar is expected to become House Democratic Caucus Chairman, the third highest position. Clark joined Congress in 2013 and has been the Assistant Speaker since 2021. Like Jeffries, she is also a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Aguilar, meanwhile, joined Congress in 2015 and became Vice Chair of the House Democratic Caucus in 2021. House Democrats plan to hold their leadership election on Wednesday, November 30th. In the Senate, Democrats are set to elect their leader the first week of December. Current Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is expected to keep his role. In that case, the Democratic leaders of both chambers would hail from the same place, Brooklyn, New York. Senator Chuck Schumer urged lawmakers yesterday to back a proposal it would bar the U.S. government from doing business with companies that use semiconductors made by Chinese military contractors. Schumer and Republican Senator John Cornyn introduced their proposal as an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA. The NDAA is an annual bill that sets policy for the Department of Defense. It is one of the only major pieces of legislation Congress passes every year. It determines everything from the purchase of ships and aircraft to pay increases for U.S. troops. The proposal from Schumer and Cornyn would broaden an existing ban on government use of Chinese chips. Twitter's new CEO, Elon Musk, says he's going to war with Apple. He says Apple slowed advertising on Twitter and is threatening to take it off its app store. He is also accusing them of antitrust violations. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg tells us why. Elon Musk has a question for Apple CEO Tim Cook. What's going on? The new head of Twitter unleashed a litany of tweets on Monday calling Apple out, questioning censorship, advertising, and the perceived monopoly they hold. Musk took issue with a 30% fee Apple charges on everything sold through their app store. He posted a meme of a car labeled Musk veering off the pay 30% highway at high speed to take the go-to-war exit. Musk has since deleted the post. But it seems the biggest question the entrepreneur has for Apple is around censorship. In one tweet, he says Apple has mostly stopped advertising on Twitter and asks, do they hate free speech in America? He went on to say Apple threatened to withhold Twitter from its app store, but won't say why. Musk ran a poll suggesting Apple publish all censorship actions it's taken that affect its customers. An overwhelming 85% voted yes. Musk called it a battle for the future of civilization. He says if free speech is lost even in America, tyranny is all that lies ahead. Richard Stern, an analyst from the Heritage Foundation, spoke with NTD's Stefania Cox. He says the Biden administration is putting pressure on companies and using the weight of the government to threaten them to follow their political whim. You can only surmise why Apple's doing that, but the truth is we all see what's happening here is that companies are bowing to this pressure from the government, trying to act in a dictatorial fashion to force companies to bend to their will. Biden said Musk's acquisition of Twitter is worth being looked at when asked if Elon Musk is a threat to national security. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said Monday that the administration is keeping a close eye on Twitter regarding misinformation and hate speech. The president has been very clear on calling uh, that out. He'll continue to do that, uh, and we're going to continue to monitor the situation. Go ahead. Stern calls the situation concerning. The president is not supposed to be a dictator that can marshal the force of the government against a single business owner because he doesn't share his politics. To your point on this, all of these companies have the same kind of investor profiles, they're doing the same kind of activities, but they donate to the right people, the right politicians. They support the politics of the president so they don't get put on this figurative watch list. This is a horrific turn of events where the government is infringing on people's rights, is shifting more towards a dictatorship. But it's not just in America that Apple is choosing its stance on free speech. Apple made changes to its file-sharing airdrop feature in China earlier this month, reducing it to 10 minutes for people not on a contact list. Previously, there was no limit. Protesters have been using the tool to get around the country's online censorship and share information and media easily and discreetly. The OS change only affected Apple gadgets in China after people started passing around materials critical of the communist regime and its leader, Xi Jinping. Apple has been criticized in the past for bowing to the Chinese communist regime and altering features. 
they removed the Taiwan flag emoji for Hong Kong and Macau users in 2019. The company also took down virtual private network apps, or VPNs, from its app store for users in China. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Apple says they made changes to the airdrop to stop unwanted file sharing, and they plan to roll it out globally soon. And if Apple and Google remove Twitter from their app stores, Musk has suggested the production of an alternative phone. He says he hopes it doesn't come to that. And Tesla CEO Elon Musk is considering investment in South Korea. And South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol says the government will do its best to support that investment. President Yoon held a video call with Musk last week. The Tesla chief mentioned South Korea was among the top candidates for locations to build electric vehicles. Yoon told Musk he will establish the rule of law to ensure labor relations pose no threat to Tesla's investment in Korea. The South Korean president says pursuing solutions based on laws and principles will result in a stabilized labor and management relation. He says that his team is preparing a tailored approach to grant advantages to specified companies. And just ahead, as the White House pushes for stricter gun control measures, a new study shows that handgun popularity is actually on the rise. Get the details in just a minute here on NTD News. Students at the University of Idaho returned to campus Monday, but with a lot of caution and concern. It's been two weeks since someone stabbed to death four students in an off-campus home in the northern town of Moscow. No one is in custody. Police say this was a targeted attack, but have not provided evidence to support that claim. Investigators have sifted through more than 1,000 tips and conducted at least 150 interviews. The university's president said last week some students do not want to return to campus until a suspect is caught. The killings have shaken this close-knit community and has not seen a murder since 2015. The university plans to hold a vigil on Wednesday to honor the victims. The number of Americans carrying handguns on a daily basis doubled between 2015 and 2019. The study by the American Journal of Public Health found that self-protection was a key reason for the increase. The results of the study show that roughly 3 in 10 handgun owners carried a gun on their person in the previous 30 days of the survey. Of those who carried in the past month, 4 in 10 did so every day. At a national level, that would amount to 16 million U.S. adults carrying a handgun in the past 30 days and 6 million carrying every day. The Biden administration and Democrats continue to push for more gun control. However, fewer Americans are supportive of such policies. That's according to a Gallup poll published on November 21st. The poll found that only 57% of American adults think laws related to gun control must be made stricter, down from 66% in June. U.S. life insurance companies paid out a record $100 billion in benefits last year. That's according to new data out Monday from the American Council of Life Insurers. It's nearly an 11% jump. Some of the increase can be attributed to inflation and an older population. For example, annuity payments, which typically go to retirees, also hit an all-time high. The purchase of life insurance coverage also rose last year more than 6%. According to the CDC, the leading causes of death last year were heart disease, cancer, and COVID-19. This was the largest year-over-year increase in life insurance payouts since the 1918 influenza pandemic. Whole Foods is taking lobster off the menu. The high-end grocery giant says it will stop selling the crustacean at hundreds of stores across America. Lobster is Maine's biggest export by value, but Whole Foods representatives say lobster fishing is no longer considered sustainable because of declining populations. Environmental groups also worry that the lines and equipment involved in lobster traps can be a hazard to North Atlantic right whales. It's estimated that there are only 340 of the whales left in the North Atlantic. But Maine's elected leaders say Whole Foods is following misguided environmental ideology, not actual marine science. In response, Whole Foods says it's committed to working with suppliers, fisheries, and advocacy groups going forward. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. 
And still to come, a G7 meeting urged investigation of Russian leaders calling on support for Ukraine to prosecute war crimes. And in France, Parliament has rejected a bill to reintegrate over 100,000 healthcare workers who were fired because they didn't get the COVID vaccine. We'll have all that and more for you in just a minute. For the first time ever, justice ministers from seven of the world's most industrialized nations convened. German delegate Marco Buschmann called on the International Criminal Court to investigate Russian leaders. There are limits for national investigative authorities, such as heads of state. These limits do not apply to the International Criminal Court. That's why we are also very much counting on crimes against humanity being investigated there, including against the entire Russian leadership. G7 countries vowed to widen support for Ukraine to prosecute war crimes. Now holding the chair, Germany said the group is committed to the values of humanity, human rights, and the rule of law. Bushman called for strict compliance with fair trial principles in bringing war criminals to justice. The group also signed an agreement to improve the exchange of evidence between countries. Representatives of Ukraine, the International Criminal Court, and the European Union were also present at the meeting. Russian troops are likely participating in military exercises in neighboring Belarus. That's according to a video released by the Russian Defense Ministry. The ministry says soldiers are training intensively to deal with a so-called hypothetical enemy. The Belarusian Defense Ministry earlier said there would be fewer than 9,000 Russian troops stationed in the country. The country's president, Alexander Lukashenko, said his troops will deploy alongside Russian forces near the Ukrainian border, citing threats from Ukraine and the West. But he also pledged to keep his country out of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine while still calling for peace talks. The Biden administration announced the approval of a possible sale of armaments to Finland on Monday. The missiles and weapons are worth an estimated $323 million. It comes after Finland and Sweden moved to join NATO earlier this year. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has motivated the countries to increase their defenses. The U.S. says the sale will improve Finland's air-to-air and air-to-surface weapons capabilities and will positively impact relations with countries in the Nordic region. They also say it will support U.S. foreign policy and national security by improving the security of a trusted partner. France is one of the few countries left where unvaccinated health care workers remain suspended from their jobs. A parliamentary group last week tried to pass a bill to reintegrate them into the workforce, but President Macron's coalition in parliament prevented a vote on the bill, causing a heated debate. NTD's France correspondent David Vives sent us this report. The issue of healthcare workers who had been fired for refusing the COVID vaccine caused some turmoil in the French parliament last week. The National Assembly debated a bill for their reinstatement, proposed by the leftist coalition, NUPS. But after the government coalition added numerous amendments, the bill was shelved. This move triggered anger in the chamber. When the government is playing the obstruction game, it is inadmissible. This is the National Assembly, it's the parliamentarians who make the laws. Newbs said it would present a new bill for the reintegration of healthcare staff. Michel Rivasi is a European lawmaker. You should know that in France it affected 130,000 employees, all professions combined. In the U.S., there have been lawsuits demanding the reinstatement of these employees with salaries compensation, as well as in Canada. My question is to you, what have you done for the rights of these workers and for their dignity? Louise Fouché is an anesthetist and one of the healthcare staff who refused the jab. He told the Epoch Times it has been very hard for him to get by after his suspension. Suspended staff have no right to unemployment benefits, no right to paid holidays, no right to anything. In fact, there's no social support. You are really on your own, suspended, full stop. You've decided that you don't want to be part of the society anymore, and that it's extremely painful. The question of reintegrating unvaccinated staff also comes amidst a crisis at the French hospitals. 
The health minister promised about £350 million to help the health service. But this won't be enough to satisfy healthcare unions who have denounced for years what they call poor conditions and lack of staff to properly take care of patients. Fouché, who worked at the Marseille hospital, says the suspension is a political decision. We've been hearing for years and years in the media that there aren't enough beds, there aren't enough staff. Again, there are not enough workers. So where are those 130,000 suspended missing staff? And in the end, the suspended workers are just one piece of a plan to destroy our health system, which is deliberate. And the suspensions of health care staff has nothing to do with a health issue. President Macron said that the decision to bring back suspended health care staff should be based on scientific advice. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Police have taken down a cartel believed to control up to a third of Europe's cocaine trade. European policing agency Europol made the announcement on Monday. The cartel was based in the United Arab Emirates. From November 8th to the 19th, police arrested a total of 49 suspects in raids in Belgium, France, the Netherlands, Spain, and the UAE. Europol said, quote, the scale of cocaine importation into Europe under the suspect's control and command was massive. In total, more than 30 tons of drugs were seized. The operation to coordinate raids was dubbed Desert Light and took two years to plan. And coming up, horse breeders in Eastern Europe hope their tradition earns UNESCO intangible cultural heritage status. For centuries, the breed has been prized by cavalry riders and European nobility. And Brazil's National Museum is rising from the ashes after a fire destroyed most of the museum years ago. Now parts of the cultural site in Rio de Janeiro are open to the public again. Get the story in just a minute. Good to have you back with us. For centuries, horse breeders in Eastern Europe have carefully nurtured a noble breed. Now they're hoping UNESCO heritage status might guarantee their future. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on these revered animals. Miroslav Milankovic and his team work at a stud farm in northern Bosnia. They're eagerly awaiting for the end of November. That's when they hope to gain UNESCO intangible cultural heritage status for a special breed. Lipizans are an endangered horse breed with an estimated global population of 8,000. Any breed, Lipizans included, with fewer than 8,000 animals is considered to be endangered. The farm is among several hundred in Austria, Bosnia, Croatia, Hungary, Italy, Romania, Slovakia, and Slovenia. The rare horses are smaller in stature, but they have a powerful shape and noble appearance. It walks like a pretty lady. It is distinguished by its grace, high-stepping, and exceptionally beautiful, elongated, or as we say, swan-like neck. For centuries, they've been prized by cavalry riders and European nobility. Libizans are distinguished by their lineage. All of our horses, our Libizans, can be traced back to their original ancestors in 1580. The best-known Lipizzans are trained at the Spanish Riding School. It's one of the most famous tourist attractions in Vienna and a symbol of Austria's imperial past. Every Lipizzan horse at our farm has a registration certificate stating its name, names of its parents, its date of birth, coat color, the serial number of its microchip, and five-generation pedigree. In that way, all of our Lipizzans can be traced back, horse by horse, to the foundation bloodstock of the breed. They are among the most temperamental, the most energetic and proudest horses. But also, if you train them properly and win their trust, the most obedient. After you win their trust, they trust you forever. But give them just one reason to mistrust you, and they will never trust you again. Hurt them once, and they will stay hurt forever. Lipizzan horse breeders hope UNESCO will recognize the value of their work and help their farms survive. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. 
Scientists are still trying to unravel the tragic mystery of whale strandings. Researchers hope to find some answers after about 200 pilot whales were beached in Tasmania this fall. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on their noble efforts. Deep in museum storage, these shelves are filled with whale samples. It's a valuable resource for researchers who are studying marine life. In cold storage, there are fresh samples. So I'll show you one of the examples of some of the samples that have come through from this stranding. So if you look, you can see that darker black layer is the skin, and then the white stuff underneath is the blubber layer. More than 200 pilot whales became stranded on Ocean Beach on Tasmania's west coast in September. The tragedy grabbed the attention of researchers across the globe. As soon as this event happened, we started getting calls from researchers around the world as well who were contacting us to ask us um, if there were particular types of data that we could collect or things we could look out for while we were there. A team from the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery collected specimens from whales that didn't survive. They'll be stored indefinitely. While tragic, mass strandings offer a rare opportunity to get close to these animals. So for instance, one of the samples we were able to collect at this event uh, was a brain from one of the animals, um, which is going to some researchers in the US that are interested in whether or not some sort of brain injury may be partly one of the things that contributes to these sorts of events. Every new bit of data could shed light on these wildlife tragedies. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Parts of Brazil's National Museum are open to the public again after a fire destroyed most of its collection years ago. However, more work still has to be done. Let's take a look. The facade of Brazil's National Museum in Rio de Janeiro has been restored and is now accessible to the public again. This concludes the first stage of reconstruction. The former royal palace held the largest collection of natural history in Brazil, consisting of 20 million items. Among them, collections of insects, anthropods, dinosaur fossils, Egyptian mummies, and indigenous ceramics. A fire in 2018 destroyed around 80% of that collection. The three-story building's inner wooden structure and roof also burned down. Here is one of the parts that was highly affected. The whole palace fell to this enormous tragedy. This is an area where shelves which contained human remains will be preserved as they are. Four years later, the museum looks brand new, but only from the outside and just this side of the facade. Visitors can now access the building to see the facade and view an exhibition in the entrance hall dedicated to Brazilian minerals. One of the most significant moments was when we were recently able to open the historic facade to the public for visits. It was a great victory, conquered with great effort from the people that are helping the museum. An art historian explains the rich history of the building, which now serves as a museum. This palace was the home of a royal imperial family, the only one in Brazil, which was also the royal family of Portugal and Algarve. Later on, when Brazil became independent, it was the home of the first emperor of Brazil, Peter I, and later on the second emperor, Peter II. Peter II was born in this palace. His mother was Queen Leopoldina of Austria. She led the meeting that started Brazil's independence process. It took place inside the palace 200 years ago. The surrounding palace gardens are now a public park. Many families from the northern part of the city visit the park and neighboring zoo. I found it very nice. It brought back a dear memory, the museum and this place. The museum plans to run again, thanks to items gifted or loaned by private individuals and other countries, and is expected to restore its role as a public space. An artisan family in India's western Patan city has been keeping the 900-year-old heritage of making patola saris alive. They weave dyed threads using handlooms to make uniquely patterned yards of silk. It started in the 11th century when at least 700 weaver families migrated from the western Maharashtra state to the city of Patan. The method is now bestowed upon the lone surviving family of weavers, the Sals. Artist Bharat Sal said both the horizontal and vertical threads are dyed so meticulously that when we weave it, they cross each other and make a design. 
It takes a minimum of four to six months, depending on the number of colors used and the level of intricacy, said another weaver in the family. And still to come, the U.S. World Cup team needs to win the next game to advance, but geopolitical controversy is overshadowing the matchup with Iran. Details to come on NTD News Today. The U.S. and Iran play in the World Cup today. U.S. fans say they're focusing on the sport, but in recent days, the game has been overshadowed by geopolitical tensions. NTD's Andrew Thomas reports. The controversy sparked when the U.S. Soccer Federation temporarily displayed Iran's national flag on social media without the emblem of the Islamic Republic. The organization said the post was intended to show, quote, support for the women in Iran fighting for basic human rights. A coach for the team said the players and staff were not involved. I think this is just a clever ploy by a lot of the media to try to turn all world fans against the United States right now. If coaches and players and teams are not allowed to bring politics into football, why are our announcers, why are the journalists, why can't we just focus on the sport? According to Iran state media, the Iranian Football Federation plans to file a complaint against U.S. soccer. We're coming back heavy hard on Iran tomorrow. No politics aside, this is soccer. This is soccer, and we're coming back. We're coming hard, we're winning, and we're advancing to the next round. That's what's happening. There's a long history of volatile relations between the U.S. and Iran. Washington and Tehran severed all formal diplomatic ties in 1980 after the Islamic Revolution. Relations have been strained in recent years over the Iran nuclear deal, and the U.S. killed Iranian General Qasem Soleimani in 2020. The World Cup was mired in controversy long before kickoff. The host country, Qatar, was criticized over LGBT issues and its treatment of migrant workers. There's been a lot of geopolitical distractions having the whole World Cup in Qatar. So uh, this definitely takes away from the game and puts a focus on that. But thank goodness, the the coach, the players, they weren't part of it. So they've been preparing the whole time for Iran. The U.S. could secure a place in the knockout round with a win. Iran only needs to tie. The match is at 2 p.m. Eastern, Tuesday. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Soccer fans living on Wales Street in an English town have renamed their road England Street ahead of the two countries' make-or-break World Cup match. Wales and England will face each other this afternoon for a spot in the final 16. It's being called the Battle of Britain. A temporary England Street sign appeared on Wales Street. Almost every house in the Terrace Street has an England flag on display, but one resident had the courage to display a Wales flag. Wales need to beat England to have any hope of progressing into the tournament's knockout stages, but even a win might not be enough. They also need the other remaining group match between Iran and the United States to end in a draw. England would have to lose by four goals to be eliminated. Turmeric, one of the most powerful spices on earth. It has the potential to prevent and treat cancer, and that's no small claim. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. About 1 billion people around the world consume turmeric on a daily basis. It's especially revered in India and it's said to be the country's gift to the world. This medicinal herb has an ability to treat a wide range of ailments. But why is it enormously effective, especially against cancer? Well, researchers note that Indian natives have considerably lower rates of certain cancers than their American counterparts. And today, we're going to find out why. As turmeric is such a widely used spice in India, could it be that it has something to do with the low rates of cancer in that country? And if so, how so? Let's look at the powerful active ingredient in turmeric, curcumin. Curcumin is the substance that gives turmeric its distinctive golden yellow color. Curcumin has anti-inflammatory properties. But unlike other over-the-counter drugs, it has no toxic side effects. Curcumin protects healthy cells. It can also destroy cancer cells before they have an opportunity to spread. According to studies, curcumin also has antioxidant, chemopreventative and chemotherapeutic abilities. In other words, it acts as a blocking agent against the proliferation of cancer cells. It can also reduce tumor size. 
According to the National Institutes of Cancer, extensive research over the past two decades suggests that curcuminoids, the active ingredient in turmeric, interferes with multiple cell signaling pathways, providing support for the potential role of curcumin in modulating cancer development and progression. According to a study published in Anti-Cancer Agents in Medical Chemistry, curcumin is not just effective in targeting brain cancer stem cells, but also cancer stem cells of various origins, including colorectal cancer, pancreatic cancer, breast cancer, and head and neck cancer. Obviously, curcumin, the active ingredient in turmeric, is highly effective in the fight against cancer. There are many ways to easily incorporate this delicious spice into your daily routine. It's fairly mild tasting and is easy to slip into savory dishes and sweet smoothies. There are plenty of recipes online. The word of the year is gaslighting, and that's no lie. Merriam-Webster says people looked up the definition of that term dramatically more this year than in previous years. The publishing company says gaslighting is the act or practice of grossly misleading someone. The word's origin comes from the name of a 1938 play involving a man who tries to make his wife believe she is going insane. One of his tricks is to make the gas lights in the house dim and then deny the lower lighting to his wife, leading her to not trust her own perceptions. NASA's Orion spacecraft is breaking records on its Artemis I mission. It's now surpassed Apollo 13's record for a distance from the Earth. Orion is now more than 270,000 miles from the Earth. The record set during the Apollo 13 mission was just under 250,000 miles. Orion is currently in distant retrograde orbit around the moon. NASA is using the mission to help establish the first long-term presence on the moon, but that's just a stepping stone to sending the first astronauts to Mars. Orion is scheduled to return to Earth with a splashdown in the Pacific Ocean on December 11th. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.